First Chronicles chapter 16. We're still today continuing on with our study of David. First Chronicles chapter 16. I want to read just one verse, and that will again sort of serve as a way of introducing the topic this morning that I want to discuss with you. First Chronicles 16 and verse 1. So they brought the ark of God and set it within the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. My late uncle, Willis Webb, he was an upper atmospheric physicist out at White Sands Testing Grounds in New Mexico. He once pointed out to me that the scientific method in use in our world today is skewed in certain ways in that it tends to ignore very interesting things. The scientific method today is based a lot on probabilities, counting the number of times certain things happen. We're dealing in areas where a lot of times you can't really witness or see an event, so you deal in the probabilities, in the statistics regarding certain events. And my uncle gave me an example. He says, suppose men from Mars landed a probe on the Earth to measure the wind velocity. And every day, the probe that is landed on Earth sends back the measurements of our wind. It says, you know, usually it's about 5 miles an hour, maybe 10, maybe some days 20, 25, more rarely 40, 50 mile an hour gusts sometimes. But if you were to plot that, you would say, well, there's a high probability that on most days the wind on Earth would be between, say, 0 and 10 miles an hour. That's where the peak of the curve would be. But he says, suppose one day you're sitting on Mars and you're watching the wind, and it, as usual, is somewhere between zero and about 50 miles an hour. And all of a sudden you begin to watch with amazement, and you see that it goes to 100 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour, and then drops. What would be your tendency? Well, my uncle pointed out that in the scientific world today we would say, well, Obviously, we got some dirt in the thing. Uh, that would be an oddball measure. It would be an anomaly, and we would toss out that measurement and treat it as noise, not a real valid measurement. And he points out that in doing so, we would miss probably what is the most interesting feature of weather on Earth, a tornado. Well, we're going to be looking this morning at an anomaly. An anomaly is something that doesn't quite fit the system. It's outside the bounds, outside the rules. I want to point out a rather amazing anomaly that we discover in the Old Testament. We have been dealing, of course, for the last many sessions on the life of David. And we pointed out last week that David, God has now established him as king. He has moved the capital of his kingdom from Hebron to a place they knew as Jebus, inhabited by the Jebusites. But David and his men took that rocky crag, and they renamed it Jerusalem. And there David will form his kingdom's capital. He will build his house. And we learned also that he brought the Ark of the Covenant to that place, and therefore the reign of David and the presence of God would be reunited and united in the place called Jerusalem. 
I want to give you just a little bit of background about the Ark of the Covenant and about the tabernacle in general. I suppose most of you have had some exposure to how the tabernacle came into being. You remember that shortly after God gave Moses the law, after they had come out of Egypt, there were directions given throughout the last half of the book of Exodus concerning the construction of a thing called the tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply meant a tent. You can read the last chapters of the book of Exodus and you'll find all the things that were to be built and how it was to be constructed. He was constructed according to a pattern, the Bible says, that was shown to him in the mount. It had a courtyard around it, sort of a big, tall linen fence. It had a gate down at the east end of which you could enter. And there out in the courtyard was this big brazen altar, an altar of brass. And on that altar, animal sacrifices were offered. And as you went a little closer, there was a labor bowl, sort of like a brass bird bath. A bowl full of water. And the priest, as before they would go into the tent, they would stop and wash their hands and feet at that labor bowl. And then the tabernacle itself was this big tent like structure. And you walked inside, and suddenly you saw that the walls were made of boards coated with gold. I'm sure that was an awe inspiring sight as you came within that tent like structure. It looked rather plain and ordinary. Badger skins covered the outside, but as you went within, suddenly everything is gold. Inside the, the pieces of furniture, a table of showbread. We already talked about how David, you remember, and his men ate the bread on that table there when he went, was starving and fleeing for his life from King Saul. The table of showbread, an altar of incense that set before the veil, and then over here this golden candlestick. That's all the light there was in there. Don't you know that was a sight seeing those candlelight flickering off of all that gold? And then you remember that there was the veil strung across that divided the tent really into two compartments. The outer compartment they called the holy place. And then there was the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. And in that room was this one piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. It was just a box, a box made out of wood, overlaid with gold, with a what was called a mercy seat, a plate over the top of it, with two angelic creatures facing each other, one at each end. Inside the box was a, the tablets of stone, the law that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. Eventually there would be a little uh, vase of the manna that they would eat in the wilderness, as well as Aaron's rod that budded would be placed inside that box. You know the importance of that. It was there that God promised to meet with them, that his presence would go with them. It was there that they approached God and offered sacrifices. During their wilderness wanderings, they carried the Ark of the Covenant, and they carried the basic pieces of the tabernacle with them wherever they went. They were all made to be portable. The Ark itself had rings made on the sides of the box through which they could place staves, and they would carry, the Levites would carry the Ark up on their shoulders, as well as the, regular, the rest of the uh, pieces that went into making and building the tabernacle. But when they entered into the land of Canaan, the tabernacle was erected uh, for a long time at a place called Shiloh. You may remember that it was at Shiloh that the priest Eli ministered when Samuel, as a little boy, went up to live with Eli. At some point subsequent to that, the tabernacle was relocated down closer to Jerusalem, about ten miles away up to the north and the west, a town named Gibeon 
had a high place, it was called. And there the tabernacle was erected. There it was in the days of David. But I want to remind you that something very unusual happened to the Ark of the Covenant. During Eli's days, you recall that his sons were basically worthless. They were very wicked men who were serving as priests. They got into a battle with the Philistines, and Eli's sons decide that they were going to take the ark down to the battle. And the next day, the Philistines defeated the Israelites and captured the ark. Well, the Philistines now have this treasure, but they're not exactly sure what they're going to do with it. They take it down to the temple of their god, Dagon, who is this idol, and they place the Ark of the Covenant inside their temple. Well, they get up the next morning, and old Dagon has fallen over on his face. Well, they prop him back up. The next day, he has fallen over on his face, and his head's broke off, and his arms are broke off. So they say, you know, this isn't working. And on top of all of that, the people are being smitten with a plague, delicately put, a plague of hemorrhoids. That's what the scriptures say. So these Philistines say, hey, we don't want this thing here anymore. They, they went over to one of the neighboring Philistine cities. Let's send it to you. Well, the plague just followed the ark from there over to the new town. The, ark, the new town says, we don't want it. Let's send it over to this town. This town says, uh-uh, don't bring that thing here. So here the Philistines have this problem. They captured the ark of the covenant. Now what are they going to do with it? So finally they hit upon a scheme. I know. Let's send it back to Israel. And you know the story. They put it on an ox cart. And they uh, send the ox headed in the general direction of Israel. And as it comes to a place called Beth Shemesh, the Israelites are out in their fields reaping their wheat. And they look up and they see an amazing sight. Here's these couple of oxen pulling a cart up the road, no driver. And in the back of the wagon is nothing less than their ark. And so, oh, they're so excited. They're rejoicing. And you've heard the old expression, curiosity killed the cat. Well, curiosity killed these cats. Uh, they just couldn't stand it. They had to look within the ark. They wanted to see what was inside. And when they did, many of them died, as you'll see, that God smote them with judgment. So the men of Bathsheba send it on up the road to the next place. It was a town called, depending on which uh, account you read, it was a place that had two names. The first name was a place called Baal Judah. Baal Judah. The other place was called Kiriam Jerim. Uh, let's call it Baal of Judah for the sake of my pronunciation. It was a town, little town, again, back over on the border where Judah meets the, the land of the Philistines. And it was there that the ark would be taken into the home of a man named Abinadab. Abinadab was a Levite. And his sons would become the custodian of the ark and it would be there in this man's house and in his son's house for about a hundred years. Now, the anomaly that I'm trying to point out to you is that all this time, the ark has been up here either in the land of the Philistines or at Bashemesh or for a long time at this place called Baal of Judah, while the tabernacle is somewhere else either at Shiloh or at Gibeon. In other words, the priests and the Levites are ministering here at the tabernacle, this big tent, 
offering their sacrifices, but inside there is no ark. The Holy of Holies is empty. Now we read, last week we talked about the fact that David desires to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now nobody had apparently thought or given much thought to the Ark for a long, long time. In other words, we're talking about way before Samuel began to rule as judge, throughout the reign of King Saul, the seven years that David is king in Hebron, now well into David's reign as king, Nobody has given much thought to the fact of even where the ark is. But David desires to bring it from the house of this man Abinadab up in Baal of Judah into Jerusalem. Well, you probably know the story of how they set it on an ox cart, just as it had come to them. And this man Abinadab and his two sons, they're sort of watching over this thing. And as they go down the road, the ox stumbles, the cart sort of tips. And one of his sons, Uzzah, reaches up to touch the ark, to steady it. And he's immediately stricken. God kills him. Well, that sort of caused them to stop and think twice. They decided, no, we're not going any further with this thing. They put the ark inside the home of a man named Ebed Odom. And after about three months, it was told to David, you know, the Lord is blessing this man abundantly, this fellow in whose house the ark is. So David again then begins to plan on bringing the ark into Jerusalem. But this time, he says, we didn't do it right the first time. We're trying to do the right thing. We just weren't doing it the right way. But the way we ought to bring the ark in is the way they transported it in the wilderness. Go get the Levites to carry the ark on their shoulders. And you'll read the account of how when they left the home of Obed-Edom, they went six paces. Everything seemed to be okay. They stopped, offered sacrifices, and then they bring the ark on up the road into Jerusalem. You'll also read that as they came into the city of Jerusalem, that David the king danced in front of this procession. And you'll read that Michael, remember Michael was Saul's daughter, his first wife. She looks out the window, sees him dancing before the ark, and despises him in her heart. You're familiar. That's the basic data. But may I point out to you the unusualness of what is going on? But on the one hand, David says, the reason that we got into trouble transporting the ark in the first place is because we didn't do it like the law said doing. We didn't do it as God gave directions. But when he does transport the ark, he doesn't bring it back to the tabernacle. He brings the ark to Jerusalem. He doesn't put the ark in the tent that is erected at Gibeon, where the priests are ministering, where the sacrifices are being offered. Rather, in our text, here in First Chronicles 16, we read that David erects his own tent in Jerusalem and places the ark inside that tent. Through the rest of the reign of King David into the reign of Solomon, his son, till the time that the temple is built, the tabernacle will be up at Gibeon some ten miles away with an empty holy of holies with no ark in it, with the priests ministering up there offering their sacrifices. The ark will be down in Jerusalem at another tent. Now keep in mind that the word tabernacle, both in Greek and Hebrew, simply means tent. 
I know we tend to, when I say tabernacle, you think of that special tent that God gave Moses direction. But the word tabernacle is just a generic term for tent. So we could have just as easily have said, in fact, in 2 Samuel, if you read the account there, it uses the term tabernacle. David pitched a tabernacle and placed the ark inside it. So throughout David's reign, for the rest of the time, until the temple is built, the ark will be there in Jerusalem in another tent, in another tabernacle. Do you... You know, I tend to get excited about these little anomalies. These, and you, I don't sense that excitement in your face. Somehow I don't believe y'all are quite as excited about this as I am. Let me point out to you that First Chronicles 16 is the only place in the Bible that you will find a description of the worship that went on inside this tent that David pitched. In Jerusalem, there is a description of how they did it and what they did inside that tent. And it is most instructive. First of all, let's go on in First Chronicles 16 that you'll see in verse 4 that David appoints certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. Takes of the Levites, certain of them, and appoints them to certain functions. One of those functions, and it says in the King James, was to record. To record. Now, that didn't mean they had a little cassette recorder and he recorded what went on. This word record is a very unusual term. It means to be a remembrancer. I'm trying to come up with an English word. It is to be a one whose job is to bring things to your remembrance. That's what a recorder was. In fact, over in 2 Samuel 8, you'll find David's cabinet. You'll find that David was king over the host, that is, over the army, was a man by the name of Joab, the commander-in-chief. A man by the name of Jehoshaphat was the recorder. That's the office mentioned here. You'll also find another man. Two men were over the priests. And then another man was the scribe in the kingdom of David. In other words, this was like a cabinet position. This man, his job was to be a remembrancer. Or we might say in English, a mentioner. That was his job. Well, you say, well, we'll mention what? To bring what to remembrance? The great acts of God done in the behalf of Israel. Here is a man whose job, and basically it's a lot like my job, he is to remind Israel of what God has done for them in the past. And so David puts this man in charge of that function, to call to remembrance to the mind, the collective mind of Israel, all the great redemptive acts that God has done on their behalf. And then, you'll notice, others were to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. As this one man brings the mighty works that God has performed on the behalf of Israel to their mind and to their attention, the others are then to lead them in a response of thanksgiving and adoration and praise towards God. 
Does that remind you of something? Does this sort of sound like what we try to do on a Sunday morning? That this is really what we're, you know, we sang. What was our first song we sang this morning? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus His Son and give Him the glory. Why? Great things He has done. Do this in remembrance of me. And then another interesting feature is the uniting for the first time in biblical history, the uniting of music to the worship of God in a regular way. Through the Old Testament, through the books of law, through what God commanded Moses. And He commanded Moses to do a lot of things, but He never commanded them to sing. He never commanded them to make music. There were a couple of occasions, of course, when they did sing. When He delivered them at the Red Sea, they sang the song of Miriam. You remember, she led the maidens of Israel in this dance, commemorating that victory. But as far as music being connected to the worship of God in a regular, systematic way, it's completely unknown till this day. David appoints another man. His name is Asaph. You read about him here in verse 5. Asaph is going to be the song leader or the choir leader or the leader of the band because you'll see that not only did they sing, but they had a number of instruments involved in the praise of God. Psalteries, harps, cymbals, trumpets. Someone once asked, I remember at one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, conferences, that I attend, they were discussing the role of music in worship, and uh, one of them said, uh, well, is there any place whatsoever for purely instrumental music in worship? I mean, do we really have a warrant for Sue to play the piano during the offering? Should, shouldn't it always be vocal praise? Do we ever have a warrant for using instruments. And one fellow didn't say a word. He just stood up in the back and he read. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with the stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Yea, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. And then He sat down. Text closed. <laughs> Psalm 150 says, Everything that has breath, everything that can make racket, let it praise God. You'll find that not only does David appoint Asaph, to be the leader of their worship in music and in song and in the playing of these instruments. But David also composes a psalm. He opposed, we say psalm, may I just call it a song. He composes a song for this occasion. And you'll see down here in verse 7, Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. David wrote the psalm, gave it to his song leader, and said, Now y'all sing this. And most of the rest of the chapter is a description of what David wrote. 
Here's the psalm. You will find, if you'll study this, that really there's two psalms, we call them, connected together. Most of the first part of this is found in Psalm 105. Most of the last half of it is Psalm 96. In other words, we have two psalms in our Bible that are here put together for one long psalm. Let's just notice a few of the the themes here. Look in verse 8. Here's how the song is to begin. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. That's that recorder again. Sing unto Him. Sing psalms unto Him. Talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Remember Here we are again. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. And on and on we go. It is basically a call of the people of God to thanksgiving, to praise of their God by reminding them of God's marvelous works for them in the past. You'll notice that what is happening is that the worship of God at the tabernacle of Moses, basically the people went and merely observed. They watched what the priests did. Here, in another tabernacle, the tabernacle of David, erected in Jerusalem, the people are not just spectators. They are participants. Do you realize that what that description, we were talking last Monday night, I believe in our class, Steve, as Brother George reminded us of what happened during the Protestant Reformation, was that same transformation of worship. That previous to the Protestant Reformation, basically the people went to church to view, to be a spectator of the priest doing his little magical number. It's called the sacraments, or really he had the power to perform certain miracles of transforming the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ, so it was thought and taught. And so basically you went to church to watch the priest. But with the Protestant Reformation, something happened to the nature of worship in the church. That rather than the people of God going there to be a spectator, they went to participate. And I thought Steve's comments this morning were very apt. That even in this portion of the service where you tend to say, well, this is just Brother Mark, this is what he's up there doing, that you are to be active participants in your reception of the Word of God. That you're not just sitting there like knots on a log, but that you actively seek to partake of what is being said, and you constantly judging what is being said by the testimony of God in His Word. That you're partaking in the service, and in the worship of our God. Then there's another element about this worship, and that's the intimacy of what went on in that tabernacle. You know, David did a lot of writing about the courts of God. Remember Psalm 100? Enter into his courts with thanksgiving, his gates with praise. Now, when you read those words, what comes to your mind? Where do you suppose David was talking about going? And I don't know about you, but when I hear, you know, enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving, immediately what comes to mind is the temple. What are you talking about going up to the temple? Well, no, that couldn't be. 
There wasn't a temple in David's day. Wouldn't be a temple till in the day of Solomon his son. Oh, it must then be the tabernacle. He was talking about going to the tabernacle. Which tabernacle? There's two. There's one in Jerusalem that has the ark. There's another up at Gibeon, about ten miles away, that has an arkless holy of holies. Which one do you suppose David was talking about when he says, let's go into the presence of God. Let's enter into his courts and his presence with singing and joy. I don't think he had in mind the one up at Gibeon. But the one in Jerusalem. In fact, do you remember those marvelous promises that we studied last time that God gave David? That a man of his seed would reign on his throne forever and ever. Remember that? Look in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's where you find those promises. Starting in about verse 12. God says to David, I'll set up your seed after you. I'll establish his house. A man of your seed will reign on the throne forever and ever and so forth. Then look at First Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. After God has made him these promises, what does David do? Second Samuel 7, 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? David is just shocked and amazed that God would make such promises to him. But notice the language. What did he do? He went in and sat before the Lord. Where'd he go? He didn't go up to Gibeon, to that tabernacle. It must have reference to the fact that he went in to this tent that he had erected in Jerusalem. Notice that he went in and sat before the Lord. It's been pointed out by many that in the tabernacle of Moses, there's no place to sit down. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews points out, that the priest standing daily offering often the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Speaking of the ongoing nature of their work, that there's never a final, a finishing point. And notice that David, even though king, would not have been allowed inside the tabernacle up there at Gibeon, the tabernacle of Moses. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. But here David the king goes in to this tent, sets down before the Lord, and then begins to utter this amazement. How in the world, why have you done such a thing for somebody like me. Do you see that there's an intimacy? We've already pointed out a freedom of worship, a liberty of worship that was unknown in the days of Moses. Now we also see there's an intimacy of worship. And then notice towards the end of our text in First Samuel, First uh, Chronicles chapter 16, that David does a most unusual thing. 1 Chronicles 16, down in verse 37, it says, So he left there, speaking of Jerusalem, so he left there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Asaph and his brethren, to minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom, and he talks about all the folks that he left there to help them. Then verse 39, And Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. 
David divides the Levites. Some of them remain there in Jerusalem to minister before the ark. But he takes the priests and sends them up at Gibeon, and they are, as you read on, to offer the sacrifices that the law demanded to be offered every day. Again, do, do you understand this is a rather unusual thing going on here? We got two tabernacles. We got one, one with the ark in it down here in Jerusalem. We got another that has an empty Holy of Holies up there at Gibeon. And David divides the Levites. He lets some of them stay in Jerusalem to worship and lead in praise and thanksgiving down here where the ark is. The rest of them, the priests, are to go up to that tabernacle at Gibeon and offer their sacrifices before an empty Holy of Holies. Which one would you rather be in? Where would you rather be in this picture? I don't know about you, but I believe I'd rather be down at Jerusalem. I think I'd rather be down there where God was, where His presence was being manifested. I believe I'd rather be down there where they had liberty, where there was music and joy. Now, you'll see David sent some musicians up there to, uh, to Gibeon as well. But notice that the freedom, the liberty of the worship and the praise that's going on in Jerusalem, that till this time is simply unknown not to be found in the Word of God till David's day. This rather strange situation is going to remain throughout the rest of the reign of David into the reign of Solomon his son. And it will not be until Solomon completes the building of the temple that you'll read that they went and they got the ark out of the tabernacle, the tent that David had pitched in Jerusalem and brought it into the temple. And they went up to Gibeon and got the furniture, the rest of the furniture up there, and they put it in the temple. Then from then on till the time of Christ, these elements are reunited. But throughout the reign of David, there are two tabernacles. One, the tabernacle of Moses. The other, the tabernacle of David. Now, let me try to draw some things out of this. First of all, I don't want to overlook, as we have been noting throughout our study of the life of David, this amazing man. And what is amazing is the character that is being exhibited in his heart. The godliness of this man. His delight in the things of God. And every time we turn the page, we see something that strikes us about David as being so unusual. Here in this story, we find something very unusual. You remember when David brought the ark into Jerusalem, that the Scripture says he stripped down to his ephod. His ephod, sort of like we'd say his long johns, his linen undergarment. He took off his outer robe. This is the king we're talking about. Took off his robe, stripped down to his long johns, and he began to dance and leap before the ark as it was entering the city of Jerusalem. And Michael, his wife, looks out the window, sees her husband out there dancing and jumping up and down, and despises him in her heart. When a procession in those days, and really up until modern times, when any kind of a parade would enter town, you would always have the village fool, a buffoon, an idiot, as we would say, some crazy guy out of his mind, to go in front of the possession, to basically jump up and down and make a fool out of himself in order to draw the attention of the town and of the people to what was coming afterwards. David, the king, has taken upon himself that role. 
stripping down to his underwear, basically, and acting like a fool. When we're talking about dancing here, we're not talking about ballroom dancing, folks. We're talking about somebody just jumping up and down, leaping and dancing, making a fool out of themselves in order to draw attention to what's following. Well, after they brought the ark into town, after they offered their sacrifices, David goes back home. And his wife lets him have it. Boy, weren't we something today. Can I, can I read you what she says? Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself. Today, in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Boy, weren't you something. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. And I will yet be more base than this, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the handmaidens whom thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. In other words, it's before God that I danced. Before God, I became a fool. The God who put me on this throne, the God who exalted me over your father, exalted me, my kingdom over his kingdom. I will dance. I will play the fool before this great God. You understand, if that had been you or me, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, this mighty act, how would you have done it? How would I have done it? I suspect I know how I would have done it. You know, I'd be riding into town on this nice big old white stallion, you know, prancing, proud, puffed up, saying to everybody, look, look who's responsible for this. Look what's coming. Look who did it. And David says, I will be base. I'm willing to abase myself because it's the Lord that's coming. I would rob nothing of the glory that is accruing to His name by pretending that I'm something. Oh my, another one of those amazing glimpses into the life of King David. And then finally, this little episode about these two tents, these two tabernacles, might just seem, you know, you just sort of roll your eyes. Scratch your heads. And we do that a lot in Scripture. There's a lot of things that are mentioned that sort of catch our attention and we really don't know what it means. And, and perhaps this whole episode of these two tabernacles, these two tents, one with the ark, one with the rest of the furniture given by direction to Moses, just might seem an interesting little detail and we wonder about it. Were it not for one little verse over in the New Testament, 
You see, it's at the council in Jerusalem in Acts the 15th chapter. The question of whether Gentiles are to have circumcision imposed upon them is what is being discussed. Some of the Judaizers are saying, yes, we demand that they be circumcised and told to keep the law of Moses. Others there. Peter is telling what has happened in Cornelius' house. Paul and Barnabas have come up from Antioch, and they're arguing the other side. And finally, in Acts 15, would you turn there a moment? Acts the 15th chapter. It is James, it seems, who gives the final word on the subject, the final ruling of the apostles, which, of course, was that no, circumcision is not to be imposed upon the Gentiles. But notice what he says. Acts 15, verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the heathen to take out of them a people for his name. In other words, Simeon is Simon Peter. Simon Peter has told us how God visited these heathen up there at Cornelius' house and took out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Here he quotes from Amos the ninth chapter. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again its ruins and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the heathen upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And James, as you go on, deduces from this that no, God didn't intend for Gentiles to become Jews. But notice what this quote from Amos says, that God would return and he would raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. I've yet to read a commentator on this passage that doesn't equate the tabernacle of David here with the house of David. They say this is the restoration of the Davidic kingship. But the words tabernacle, tent, and house are two completely different words are never confused in Scripture. Why did James quote this passage? Calvin himself in his commentary on this passage asked that question. If all he wanted to show is that the Gentiles as well as the Israelites would be included in the kingdom of Messiah, Calvin points out there's many other passages that would have said that and said it much more clearly. But my question is, what if James was not merely saying that, that Gentiles would be included in the kingdom? The Judaizers weren't arguing against that but the manner in which they would be included in the kingdom. The mode of worship in the days of Messiah. That the way that we would worship God in this New Testament day is very similar, if not identical, to the way they worship God back there in that old tabernacle, that tent that David erected in the city of Jerusalem. No, that's not where they would offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's up there at Gibeon. This is not where you had to mind your P's and Q's, as we say, and hold your mouth just right, as the priests were directed to do. There was a freedom, a liberty of worship here at this place. It was worship that was based on the remembrance of God's great works on your behalf. Worship that sprang out of a heart that was overflowing with thanksgiving and praise and adoration towards God. Could it not be that James is simply saying what God is telling us? 
Is that the way we're going to worship God in this era? Is that He's going to raise up the tabernacle of David once again? A place where location, genealogy, race doesn't make any difference. Where worship is based on an attitude of heart. Where men will worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, I cannot prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt. I have a strong hunch. That's what James is saying. But I will say that my conclusion is valid because it is backed up by text after text in the New Testament. That there is a circumcision, my friend, that matters. This morning, if you belong to God, you better be circumcised. But it's not your body, it's your heart. It's not a circumcision of the letter, says Paul, but a circumcision of the heart, a spiritual circumcision. There must be an operation of God that God has performed, not on the outward body, but on the inward man. You and I, we have fallen in love with Christ. As Barry said once this morning, that there was a time in our lives that we can look back to and point back to when we had no use for the things of God. No use for Christ. No love for Him. We, it mattered not to us that He went to a cross and there died and shed His blood on our behalf. We were more in love with the world, in love with pleasures, in love with possessions. That was the pursuit of our life. Now something has happened. I'll tell you what happened. God took His knife out and He began to cut some things away. We are the concision. We are the circumcision, says Paul, who worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. He cut away the confidence of the flesh, the love of the world, the pursuit of pleasure, and now, as we sing that wondrous song, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. That there is a beauty and a glory, a radiance that I see in His face that has captivated me. A love when I think of the cross and I think of what He did for sinners. When I'm reminded I have one of you say to me or we sing one of these wonderful hymns that reminds me great things He has done and what that great thing was that He shed His own blood on my behalf. There is a love revealed there that constrains my soul. A love that will not let me go. That's what God has done for me. That's the way I worship God. And therefore, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to find some whole, holy high place out here. We talk about mountaintop experiences. You know, some we always think we're a little closer to God. We're up on top of the mountain. But my friend, if we learn anything from the New Testament, it does not matter. That's your physical proximity to a physical spot on this earth. But it has to do with your spiritual proximity and nearness to God. Oh, that's a lesson I'm afraid we often overlooked, and especially in the matter of conversion. Many times I'm asked, well, why don't you give an invitation? Why don't you invite sinners down to the front, you know, to get saved? The Protestant Reformation was basically about tossing out priestcraft. That the priests can do a little miracle. You can't do. You go down there and see the priest, and he'll do it for you. My friend, we have replaced that old Catholic priestcraft with a Protestant priestcraft in our day. You know, here's the salvation man down here in front of the aisle. Go, go down there. You get saved. My friend, Christ isn't down here. He isn't in my hands to administer as I see fit and please. 
I say, and I invite you this morning, if you are outside of Christ, come to Him. But let's answer the question, where is He? Is He down here at the front of the aisle so that when you've made that trip, you've come to Christ? Is He over there on the other side of the baptismal pool so that when you've gone through the waters of baptism, you've come to Christ? Is he over there at the end of the catechism study that when you've gotten smart enough and you know enough doctrine, enough scripture, then you come to Christ? Where is he? My friend, he is on the throne of all glory. He is seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. You must come to him there. He's the only one who can do you good. My friend, I'm like a dog. One of those old hunting dogs, they call pointers. That's all I can do for you. I can point you to where He reigns, where He sits. I can point you to where you must go. Oh, my friend, would you not come to Him? Will you not flee to that throne? You say, how in the world can I get there? Only one way I know. Pray. Pray. Cry out to Him. There's one on that throne who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. There is one to whom you must come. And the writer of Hebrews again says, we're not come to that mountain down here on earth, Sinai, that smoked and burned, but we are come to the heavenly Zion, to the new Jerusalem, where Christ reigns. We've come there. My friend, have you come there?